psychedelics and absolution and it's based on a few things that I've been experiencing lately both working with people and things I've seen in life and if you look at the uh, the, the photograph that comes with this podcast it's an owl and I've been seeing a lot of owls lately and it's funny because I never really saw an owl my entire life um, until, in real, like in person, until the night that my father died. Or it was the night after he died that day. And I was in the flats of uh, Beverly Hills, actually, and an owl was sitting on the street lamp outside my house. And I had never seen an owl in the flats of Beverly Hills, and I'd never actually seen an owl anywhere. And I was taking a walk with my mother at the time, and um, friends of my mother's, and, and they told me that owls in Greek mythology, uh, they, they took the, the, the souls of the departed to the uh, afterworld. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. I was 16 at the time. It was a little over my head. But uh, I've been seeing a lot of owls lately. And, you know, a couple, one of the things that I'm dealing with in my own life is my mother's at the end of her life. And I've been spending a lot of time with her in New York City as she sort of struggles with her end. And it's been really interesting for me because she's lived a full life. Um... 87, she's going to be 88 in May if she makes it, 
and I can see that one of the things that she's really trying to work out is has she lived an okay life? Um, has she done the best with the resources that she's had? And um, is has she done enough? You know, that's that's really what I what I what I've been around. When I've been around her, she kind of comes in and out of having that kind of awareness. I think as most of us do in our life. Not just when we're dying, but all the time. And the last time I went to New York, I was working on the flight. I had gone to storage uh, the day or two before to get some warm clothes because it was cold. And when I was in storage, a printed out dream that I'd um, typed out from about seven years ago fell on the ground at my feet. And I thought, wow, I should really pay attention to this dream because the whole point of recording them is that they are these living things that can speak for days and weeks and months and years after we have them. I thoroughly believe that. And one of the things that I also thoroughly believe is that our dreams are always telling us things about ourselves that we don't presently understand. So if you can reduce a dream to it means this or it means that, that's usually not what a dream means. Because the whole purpose, the whole reason a dream gets created, the whole reason that the energy uh, gets exercised to create a dream is because some part of maybe some impersonal intelligence or maybe it's some part of you uh, thinks you need to know something, your ego state needs to know something that it doesn't understand. And usually that takes some work to get to. That takes some, some, really, some really expansive, uh, creative work with, within a dream. If anyone's interested, I have a great worksheet for it that I've used over the years on the 8,000 dreams that, uh, that, that I've had. I haven't worked on all of them, but I just sort of have this brass tacks worksheet that if, if you work with it, if someone works with it, if I work with it, I find myself in the presence of the intelligence that created the dream at the end. And what that intelligence intends for me to understand um, is never what it seems in the beginning. But when I am able to get to it or, or the intimation of it or even to get a, a fraction of what it intends, it can be very, very profound. Well, death, is like that as well. I can see. I can see as we can, you know, I see this with my mother that, uh, and I've seen this with other people who are dying as, as we're no longer able to reinforce our identity with our activity, with our physical sense of ourselves, with our, um, uh, fantasies about ourselves, because those are all being taken away. The reality of our lives comes out of the background to the foreground. And this also happens, oddly enough, during psychedelic experiences. The things that are usually outside the threshold of our understanding 
come into the threshold of our understanding. That's the gift of psychedelics. It's the gift of dreaming. And it can be the gift of death. However, at death, there is not a lot you can do to change things, as far as I can tell. And with the people I've worked with, with the people I've seen in that circumstance, um, it's kind of, there's a finality to it. And all you seem to be able to be able to ask is to be forgiven by those you possibly have transgressed against, um, by the parts of yourself that hold an evaluation of you as maybe not having lived up to your capacities. Um, I've seen that recently with my mom. It's been super interesting because she's a very high achiever. Um, she had published, you know, everyone wants to write a book. I would say that everyone wants to write a book. Like I should write a book. Said that myself. I'm in the process. But my mom probably published like 20 books, 20 novels, books of poems, all this sort of stuff. And she had an enormous gift. Like she could write a novel in a weekend and then get it published. And like her sort of process from my memory as a kid is that like she would be working on a book in like the spring and in the fall. It'd be on the bookshelves in a bookstore. It wasn't, was it going to be published? It was just everything was getting published because there was a market. She had an audience. Well, one of the things I really notice about her in the final days of her life, and it's funny because I'd always thought, like when I read her stuff, that it was, it was very accomplished. Um, and she had an amazing command of language and storytelling, but it never really seemed to be about anything. <laughs> except for one or two, except for one or two novels. It was just entertainment. And her capacity, her intellectual capacity, her capacity for constructing uh, sentences and paragraphs and um, telling stories was really world class. But one of the things that I can see as she has reached the end of her life and can no longer um, kid herself that she's going to be writing anymore is that she feels like the things that she wrote weren't that important and that she had become sort of intoxicated by fame and um, sales and the capacity to generate income with her writing. And in her last days, she feels badly about that. And it also, she also, I think, feels badly about, you know, without getting too into her business, but, you know, the kind of parent that she was. And not really so much to me, because she was fairly, you know, I, I survived her, 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 her challenges as a parent pretty well. Um, so in her final days, what she wants is she wants to be forgiven 
for the ways that she knew better. And she feels regret for ways that she didn't realize the potential of her gifts in, in, in a higher form. And to me, it's a microcosm of what we are all experiencing all the time. Life is feeding us back. The intelligence behind all of life is feeding back to us all the time. And whether we listen to that, whether we adapt to it, whether we dialogue with it, whether we adjust to it, whether we change according to what it's telling us, is going to be a very big determining factor in the lives of everybody that can hear this podcast, including me. And one of the things that psychedelics offers the opportunity for as well as dreaming in the exact same way is for most people, they are going to get some information about what they're doing and how they're doing it and how they've done it and what a intelligence greater than their own thinks about that. And so, you know, whether people are engaged with that intelligence is going to be a very big determining factor in their mental health. So, some people tell me that they don't remember their dreams. And sometimes I wish I didn't remember my dreams because they can be really challenging and they can really demonstrate a dissatisfaction with present aspects of my person. It can be, dreams can be, if you remember a lot of your dreams, a significant amount of them will be about what you're not doing well and what needs to change. That's why they, that's why dreams happen. Dreams happen as a sort of measuring stick for where you are and what you're understanding and what you aren't understanding and what you're missing that could be a benefit to you and other people. So when people tell me that they don't remember their dreams, and I've worked with a lot of people who said this, and I was working with people who said this 30 years ago when I was working as a therapist, what I hear is I don't want to remember my dreams. (laughs) and it's so true because I know I may have told this story before but when I worked as a therapist as a 24 year old therapist and everybody I was like wow I was really always hoping that you were going to be a little older was the person that always said to me and and then then when I said I want to work with their dreams people would always say I don't remember my dreams and and which I always took is I, I don't want to remember my dreams Um, Because everybody dreams. Anyway, so my response to this was always, well, get a pad and and a pen and put it next to your bed and then see if you remember it then. 
because by putting the pad and the pen there, you're telling the part of yourself that dreams that you're listening and that you're paying attention. And 10 out of 10 times that I would do this, the people would come in the next week and they would say, what did you do to me? Because they all remembered their dreams. Because Jung said that if you turn towards the unconscious, it will turn back at you with twice the force that you turn at it. So for all of us, whether it's dreaming or psychedelics or uh, meditating, if you create a forum in your life where you welcome information about yourself that is outside the aperture of your present understanding, it will be provided for you. But for a lot of people, they're not going to like the information that they get because they're not interested in incorporating their deficits and their struggles into their identity because we all form our egos as a tool. And a lot of what we use to form our ego is our vanity and our best capacities and our profound fantasies about the best of us. And infrequently are your dreams um, or your psychedelic experiences going to be supporting that? <laughs> Even though we'd like them to. You know, um, I was talking to a client today or yesterday and talking about the notion of bad psychedelic trips. And there is no difference between a bad psychedelic trip and a bad dream other than oftentimes you can wake up from a bad dream and a bad, what people call bad, I should put that in quotation, psychedelic trips. Uh, tend to last a longer. And what I said was there are no bad psychedelic trips. There are hard psychedelic trips where you are asked or you are made to look at aspects of yourself or the, of your life that you are choosing to ignore because they don't fit in with your fantasy about yourself. They don't fit in with your narrative about yourself. They don't fit in with, about, with your best case scenario about yourself. They will tell you how things are. And oftentimes that can be difficult. And, you know, I will talk about one of my own experiences. I've spoken to my clients about this before because the client asked, he said, can you give me an example of that? And I said, of course I can. Um, and the example I can give is a few years ago, I had moved out from my family home and, um, I was living on my own and, you know, my kids were teenagers and they were pretty annoyed with me for having moved out because it was a huge inconvenience for them. And, you know, like I think all kids are upset when their family, um, takes new shapes and I was on my own for the first time really in, in probably 20 years. And 
I had an experience with psilocybin and, and what I was like was show it to me, show me the road ahead, show me this new life, you know, on my own and um, the golden road that lays before me of change and transformation. And one of the things that, and, and one of the things I'd sort of done was I felt like my kids were older and that they should be able to handle it. You know, they should be able to handle it. And both of my kids were not too far from the age when my father had died in my life. You know, my father had died when I was 16, and this is a personal story, and it reflects on the experience I'm going to tell you about. And so my attitude towards them was like, listen, you guys, I know you're mad at me, but come on. My dad died when I was 16. I wish he had just moved six blocks away. That would have been awesome. And I was totally unable to take on how they were actually feeling. I just kind of bullied them and, and didn't really res- bully them in the sense that I wasn't really that open to how they were feeling. I just kept saying, well, you know, my dad died when I was 16, so this isn't really a big deal. Anyway, and I thought they were being silly. So anyway, I had the psychedelic experience. And the experience was, I thought it was going to be the golden road ahead. And what I got, when I said, show me what I need to see, was I got about 10,000 years of my oldest son's uh, suffering and pain and confusion and disappointment and... um, sadness about the family breaking up and his wondering about his relationship with me and wondering if it was all real and if I really loved the family and it was excruciating and really painful and I think maybe what some people might call a bad trip anyway and then for the second half I got 10,000 years of my youngest son's pain and disappointment and confusion and wondering if I really loved him and wondering if I'd ever, if I'd ever really loved the family. And it was exactly not what I was looking for in that experience. But it absolutely changed my relationship with both my sons because never again after that experience was I able to be uninformed about what my impact on them had been. And from that moment on, my attitude was like, look, I am really sorry that I have caused pain and suffering in my decision-making with you guys. And anything that I can do to make it okay, I will do. And we have like 40, 45 years together to make it right. And anything you guys need to do or anything you guys need to say or any ways that you guys need to be to feel all right, I just want you to know that I love you. And there was no more, you guys are being such babies when I was your age. Um, My dad died. And I just wish it was he just moved out. Anyway, so it completely changed the dynamic with both of them for the better. And while I would say it was one of the most unpleasant afternoons of my life, it has improved 
my engagement with both of them infinitely since then. And so that's the kind of thing where because of however my ego was structured and part of it was that I was super dad and I'd been this great dad and coached soccer teams and done all this wonderful stuff, it, I didn't want to let in the amount of pain that I'd caused in my decision making. And the psychedelics, they wanted it in. The, the part of myself that was wiser or maybe it was an impersonal intelligence was like, dude, you are being an asshole and you are not acknowledging the sensitivity of your children and the impact that your decision-making has had on them. You're just stuck in this fantasy of yourself that you don't want to surrender to other people's experience. And so I had the good fortune of having that experience while I was still alive and while I still had a lot of life ahead of me so that I could make better decisions about my relationships and not have my fantasies about myself dominant in those situations. And I think that I very well could have had those same insights in a dream. And we're all having those insights. We're being told how we can improve, how we're coming up short, and how we're not being as much of our totality as we can be because we're stuck in fantasies about ourselves. We're stuck in fantasies about being admired. We're stuck in fantasies about liking ourselves. And I think that we are all getting that feedback all the time that there is a requirement for humility and for listening and for being in a dialogue with life that acknowledges that we don't know everything. And actually, we don't know very much at all. Um, the, the wisdom of the ego is minuscule compared to the wisdom of the self, which is kind of eternal and has its roots before this life and has its flowers after it. And it's here too. And it has an opinion about us. It has an opinion about our lives. And what I see in the experience of my mother, who's somebody who is very, very caught up in her capacities and very caught up in the admiration that she could create for her capacities and very caught up in her fantasy about who that made her, being able to do that. What I see is that all those things that she could have addressed at other times in her life, whether it was through dreams, through the feedback of life, through, you know, maybe, maybe meditation, maybe psychedelics, maybe therapy, where she could have been able to go, you know what, these things could be better and I need to surrender the parts of myself that thinks they're better than listening to this. And the parts of us that have a dream and go, oh, that dream is just about this. And it's just something that continues to support 
our fantasies about ourselves or what our lives are about is that same part that doesn't want to listen. You know, that wants, like, if we go, oh, it's just about this, we are not listening. We are not listening to the infinite intelligence that surrounds us all the time. You know, I, the reason I started this story was with, with, with the story of, of seeing owl, an owl the night uh, my father died. Was I've been seeing a lot of owls lately, and I know that that means that my mother's life is coming to an end, and owls see in the dark, and they're actually kind of badass and thick. I see them flying around now, and you know, their wingspan is like four feet, and they have thick bodies. It's amazing they can fly. <laughs> they're not fine birds. Anyway, I had one experience where I was working with a client and I was actually working in a suburb and he was actually a Native American and very sensitive guy. And he'd been sort of, um, he, 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 he had lived uh, with a Native American with Sioux mythology and um, he'd done some work before in peyote rituals and he was familiar with with altered states and he's a little suspicious of me because I was a white guy but it all worked out pretty profoundly but one of the amazing things that happened and it was one of the most amazing uh, experiences I've had working with anybody was while we were working a hawk flew over the house and cawed it went caw 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 like that, and it was funny because I'd never heard a hawk make a noise like that my entire life, and especially not in the suburbs of Los Angeles. And my client said to me, he "said Robert, did you make that noise?" And I said, "What noise?" And he said, "That hawk noise." And I was like, "Oh, that was a hawk." Yeah, no, I didn't do that. That 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 just happened. That just flew over the house. And at that point, he began to weep because he explained to me that his brother, who had been really troubled his whole life, um, his name in Sioux meant hawk. And he then went into this deep, profound cry and a sob about how he'd never really been able to help his brother, even with his own achievements and with all the love that he felt for him. And he had this incredibly cathartic insight. And it was totally inspired by that hawk flying over the house and cawing. And I still haven't heard a hawk caw since then. Maybe I have, but I hadn't up to that point. Anyway, so the thing is, is with the owl on the lamppost, um, the night my father died with the hawk that flew over the house when I was working with that man, we are all getting feedback to ourselves, to our states, to what we understand and to what we don't understand and to what has gone unprocessed and what has gone ununderstood all the time. That's, we are in that soup all the time. There is an infinite intelligence speaking to every one of us every day. It speaks to us in our dreams. It speaks to us in our suffering. It speaks to us in our illnesses. It speaks to us in our dissatisfactions. 
And if we don't listen to it and don't respond to it and don't welcome a dialogue with it, where we say, tell me what you want me to understand, which is entirely the work that I do with people. It's them saying, tell me what I don't understand. If we don't actively have a dialogue with that intelligence, and this goes for anybody, that we're going to come a cropper to the voice of that intelligence at our deaths. And we're going to say, I'm sorry I didn't listen to you because you were talking to me the whole time. And now I've run out of time to have this dialogue and to be able to do anything about it. That's what a lot of people experience at their deaths. I've seen it. But your death and my death and everybody's death is present with them in every moment. The intelligence that we will encounter in our death when we can no longer maintain the fantasy of who we are and what our lives are about and what we think we're doing and what we think is so important in our fantasy about ourselves because our bodies are failing us and we're no longer able to identify with them. That same thing is happening all the time to everybody. That same consciousness is communicating with every one of us all the time. It's so much bigger than the totality of everything and everyone. It's easy for it to keep an eye on you. It's easy for it to be aware of what you're doing and what your potentials are and where you are failing. I am failing to meet them. And in talking to that dialogue now, in, in having that dialogue now and talking to that intelligence, we will not have to beg for its forgiveness at the end. The end will be a continuation of that dialogue. And hopefully, we will have listened to its voice throughout our lives as it gently at times and more vociferously at other times, told us how we were fucking up our opportunity in this lifetime. And we weren't being what we have the capacity to be. And we weren't having the humility to look at ourselves and ask, how can I be better? How can I get outside my fantasy of myself and have the humility to ask for help from the intelligence that creates everything and has only created every one of us so that it can be transformed through our lives so that it can experience reality in this physical life and become something else through our lives that it hasn't been before and if you want to look at our culture how missing that awareness is. How much people are suffering from knowing that they're not part of that process. All you have to look at is the way that people are being treated for depression all over the world because they are isolated from that awareness that there is some kind of intelligence that not only has generated their life, 
but it's generated it for their capacity to perceive and understand themselves in a new way and to transform into something that they were not when they came into this life. And there's so little value placed on that in the world. There's so little value placed on that in our culture. We have a culture of narcissism, of Instagram and Facebook, which is present my most best version of my narcissistic fantasy about myself. A lot of the people in our culture that we're aware of, we're aware of them because they're really good at getting others to share in their narcissistic fantasy of themselves. And to see themselves, to see them how they would like others to see themselves, rather than to see themselves with humility and with a mission to transform themselves into um, something unimaginable to a narcissistic fantasy which just wants everyone to see it in the best light to see it with filters on Instagram and Facebook so what I really want this podcast to be about is to know that dreaming, dying psychedelics it's all the intelligence that has constructed our lives, your lives, my life, telling us the things we don't want to know about ourselves. <laughs> because if we know those things, then we have to change. And we have to be different. And we have to recognize our, huma our shared humanity, not what's so special about us, but what we share with others in our failings and our shortcomings and that real character is built by showing those things up and admitting them and not hiding from them not hiding from them in isms in alcoholism or workaholism or drug addiction or sex addiction but in actually dealing with that this intelligence is dying to communicate with us so that we can be more profound, more caring, more empathetic for the suffering of others because we're aware of how we suffer for our shortcomings, for what we don't understand, no matter how smart we are, no matter how capable we are, that there's always more of this intelligence to take on every day and every night and if we can do that, then we can have this transformative experience throughout our lives that when we reach its end, we'll be mostly exhausted. And the scales of the value of our life will be something that we were aware of the whole time and not something that's going to, like I said, come a cropper at the end seeming unfamiliar and severe and judgmental. Um, so I want everyone to feel inspired about this talk. I don't want it to be a bummer because I'm not finding it a bummer. I'm finding it inspiring. And um, so what I want to say is look at your lives. See how they're speaking to you. See what you can do better. 
See what you can do with more faith. Listen to your dreams. See what they're saying to you that you actually don't want to hear. And, you know, you can actually say, what's this dream telling me that I don't want to hear? And that's usually what the dream, what dreams are about. And that's usually what our lives are about. Our lives, our suffering, our depressions, our anxiety, our repetitive compulsions, they're wanting to avoid the experience of the understanding of our shortcomings. But we can understand those and we can shore them up and become more whole and more loving and more caring and more responsible. All right, so I think that's a good one. I think I'm not going to erase this one. And this is inspired by a lot of the work that I've done on www.goingquantum.org, I think it is. Or, yeah, it's goingquantum.org. And I will speak to you guys soon. The next time I'm inspired. I hope you guys are all inspired, feeling good, feeling healthy. And spring's coming. I can feel it. And so let's 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 look forward to that. All right. Uh take care. Bye.